you all, and thank you for being here. Um, we are, of course, given everything going on, reevaluating the rest of the digital dialogue season, and we'll have more to say about that soon. Um, but for today, happily, we have our speaker with us, and we're very excited uh, to hear more from him. So now I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Matt Kirschenbaum, Professor of English and Director of Digital Studies in the Arts and Humanities, to introduce our speaker. Thank you, Alex. Um, good afternoon. So, um, Digital Studies is a graduate certificate program, as many of you know, and if you don't know about it but are interested, I'm happy to talk to you more about it. Um, the other key piece of information before I introduce Leo is that we are hosting a luncheon for him tomorrow at 12 noon in Claus Hall, that's the English department, and by virtue of being in this room right now, you have de facto secured an invitation <laughs> to that lunch. Um, so catering will be from Lebanese Moderna, and um, Leo, I think, will have a few things to say, but it's mainly an opportunity to both interact socially, but also to talk not just about electronic literature, but also about sort of the, the arc of his career um, in academic leadership um, as, at various points, as you'll hear me say, a dean, a department chair, head of a major creative arts organization. And so please do um, come and see us tomorrow at noon, Tall's Hall, um, for lunch with Leo. Um, so it's my tremendous pleasure to be asked to give this introduction. Um, I'll have more to say about Professor Flores's academic bona fides in just a moment, but know from the outset that he graduated uh, from the University of Maryland's Department of English in 2010 with a PhD awarded for a dissertation co-directed by Martha Nell Smith and myself. Leo's dissertation was unusual, not only for its being one of the first works in the still then new field of digital poetry and poetics, but also because it was a single author project focusing on the Vancouver-based poet and media experimentalist Jim Andrews. The dissertation included close readings, interviews, and biography, as well as critical consideration of the larger contexts and impacts of Andrews's career. As novel as the field of digital poetry may have been, then Leo took it old school. Um, the combination of the cutting edge and what I've come to think of as a strategic traditionalism, again, close reading, criticism in the sense of learned commentary as well as critique, and vital recovery editorial and translation work has defined Leo's contributions to the broader field of electronic literature, demonstrating that a stir-fry text or a web arteroid, to name just two of Andrews's works, is its own Grecian urn, however aleatory and pixelated. Yeah, he's exercised that sensibility near Daly for many years as the creator of the widely read and referenced scholarly blogging project, I Love Heat Poetry, which you can find not only online, but also now bilingually um, in Spanish and English um, translation. So since these cornerstones, Leo has blazed a meteoric trail through the international ELIT community with a speaking roster and visiting scholars itinerary that has taken him all over the world, including as a Fulbright scholar to the University of Bergen in Norway in 2012 and 13. Uh, but he's also never lost his commitment to his students and teaching, even as he's balanced his academic trajectory with a demanding administrative portfolio at his longtime base, the University of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez, where he has been professor of English, chair of the department, and associate dean in a career lasting from 1944 to 2019. And in that remarkable 25-year span, he exposed literally thousands of students <coughs> to the pleasures and rigor of literary form in a new medium, offering courses and classroom experiences that literally no one else could have provided. Currently, Professor Flores is chair of the English department at Appalachian State University in North Carolina, a leadership position he assumed last fall. He is also currently president of the Electronic Literature Organization, the major professional organization of its field. He is co-editor of the Electronic Literature Collection, Volume 3. He writes a Spanish-language elit column in the periodical 80 Grados, and is currently co-editing the first anthology of Latin American electronic literature. I'm proud to count Leo not only as my student, but my friend and indeed my teacher. 
please welcome to myth the truly Leonine Professor Leo Flores. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that kind, kind introduction. Very generous. Thank you all for the invitation and, and, and for coming. And, and those of you online for tuning in. Uh, it's really an, an honor to return to my alma mater and, and really uh, share some of the work I've been doing. Uh, and of course, the Digital Dialogue series I've, I've been a, a longtime fan of. And it's, it's really it, it's great to come and be featured here. Well, let's get started. Um, how does a poet end up thinking in terms of algorithms, programming languages, and data sets? I'm interested in exploring the work of writers of electronic literature who, instead of writing sequences of words directly, create a computer program, modify an existing one, or use a variety of computational approaches to generate their intended texts. The images you're seeing in the background of this slide are an excerpt from Martin Scorsese's 2011 film, Hugo, in which the protagonist and his friend have repaired and activated an automaton, which begins by writing a series of inscrutable marks on a piece of paper, and later, when fully repaired, draws something related to its creator, George Méliès. This automaton offers a visual metaphor for the kind of writing practice that I will explore in this talk. Méliès could have drawn the image by holding the pen in his hand and laying ink on paper directly, but instead he built an elaborate machine to do so. In a parallel move, what the writers of generative or computational literature do is not writing directly, but programming software machines to do so. In both cases, they are at a distance from the writing, since the writing is mediated through the machine. But first, I want to set some limits. I'm not going to go into the long history of using randomization to generate texts. For instance, I could talk about the I Ching, the Book of Changes, which goes back to about 1,000 years before Christ. This ancient divination book required readers to use yarrow sticks or coins to randomly establish a hexagram, which would then be used to guide a reading of the book. The resulting poetic text would answer a question posed before initiating the randomization process, and the results would be interpreted by the reader in the context of that initial randomization. I'm also not going to go into detail about Raymond Queneau's 1961 Cent Mille Milliards de Poèmes, or 100 Million Million Poems, which by printing 10 sonnets and cutting each line allowed readers to turn each line to different pages, creating 10 to the power of 14 sonnets, or 100 million million possible permutations. Uh, he calculated that to read all the permutations would take about 200 million years without taking breaks. So this book helped launch the Ulipo movement, the Le Ouvroir de Littérature Potentielle, or Workshop of Potential Literatures, which explored mathematics and constraint-driven writing. I'm definitely not talking about B.P. Nichols' 1968 piece, The Complete Works, which uses the complete set of characters available in his typewriter to playfully claim authorship over any possible permutation of all listed elements. Um, something worth noting about these three pre-digital works is that they use the reader to complete the work, and yet they claim authorship over a larger body of work than they could possibly have written directly. More importantly, I'm not dedicating any more time to establishing lines of continuity between pre-digital and digital genera generative literature, in part because Scott Retberg already did it. Uh, he draws productive connections from Dada, Surrealism, and the Ulipo. So if you're interested in exploring this further, I'm giving you some homework. Uh, now let's go into detail on the concept of distance. My notion of distant writing is a play on Franco Moretti's concept of distant reading, which is in turn a counterpoint to close reading. With close reading, we pay careful attention to a text to draw meaning and insight from it. 
With distant reading, Moretti invites us to develop tools and methods to examine large literary corpora to find patterns and insights about literary texts and movements. A foundational assumption behind the notion of close reading is that the reason we reward texts with our careful critical attention is because someone has given meticulous attention to the writing of the text. The text may be incomprehensible at a first reading, but we trust the guiding intelligence of the writer who has burned calories to produce this text. No matter what writing implement one is using, each word is carefully chosen and placed in sequences. As a process, the writer creates the text, reads it as it's produced, and makes modifications based on the desired outcome. We call this writing, but in my metaphorical framework of distance, let's think of this as close writing. That is, that the writer and the writing are very close to each other, and the process of producing text is mediated through tools that offer the writer great control over the output. Different writing tools and systems may lead to different workflows. As we know from Matt Kirschenbaum's track changes, something as deceptively simple as a word processor can have a profound impact on a writer's creative process and output. We'll return to the topic of digital writing tools later to complicate my model. Distant writing subverts the notions of subjectivity, intimacy, and proximity in this romantic vision of a writer who, who must be a genius and meticulously chooses and arranges words in intended sequences. Distant writing is about writers who create and implement algorithms to produce texts that achieve their goals. They don't write texts directly, they write writing machines. This is a notion I first used in 2013 when writing in I Love E Poetry about one of my favorite Twitter bots called Pentametron, which I will discuss a bit later. When we look at the process, there's a double level of writing and reading involved. The writer produces and reads a programming code or process which generates a text. The writer reads the output and if happy with it, then the writing process is complete and the work gets sent off to publication, critical acclaim, and glory. But if the writer isn't happy with the output, then they modify the code or process in order to get results that are better aligned with their artistic vision. And notice that the arrows, you can see the arrows kind of coming back to the author between the author and the code, but then the code produces the text. The reader, you know, the writer reads the text, but does not intervene directly on the document, on the work that is produced. This computational poem, uh, A House of Dust, 1967, by Alton Knowles and James Tenney, uh, what we're looking at here is a re-implementation by Nick Monfort. Uh, so this piece uses a template-driven approach, kind of like Mad Libs, to generate stanzas about houses made of different materials, their locations, how they're illuminated, and something about the people who live within. So what they have written is a machine that produces this kind of cone of possibility, a cone of possible outcomes. And while the results may surprise the writers, even that surprise is intended. Computational writing allows us to extend our creativity beyond our conception, and our intent extends beyond our initial conception as well. If the writer then decides to intervene and directly modify the text, then they close the distance to exert control over it. These human-modified texts are less interesting from a computer science perspective because the output is then manually attuned to human interests, genres, expectations, and so on. It's really more of a challenge to produce a program or process that generates a text that meets or subverts such expectations from the outset. When human modification is not disclosed and then discovered, then it's even considered a kind of cheating. A recent example was the horse ebooks bot, which turned out to be a hoax in the tradition of Wolfgang von Kempelen's Mechanical Turk, um, 18th century Mechanical Turk, a machine that hit a human operator and would play a very good game of chess and would beat people. 
that bought horse ebooks had amassed an audience of a couple hundred thousand followers on Twitter who were drawn to its strangely, strangely poetic tweets, only to be disappointed years later to discover it was a performance by a BuzzFeed employee. We will return to these blurred boundaries later, but first let's zoom in to the concept. If the metaphor of proximity in writing is about control over word choices and their sequential arrangement, then close writing is about directly writing language, while distant writing is about creating algorithms that result in writing. We can extend the metaphor by conceptualizing varying distances between the writer and the text, depending on how much control over the inner workings of the textual generation process the writer has. In order to better unpack them, I'm interested in looking at some case studies for each of these distances. So we'll begin by looking at short distant writing, or short distance. Nick Monfort is well known in the electronic literature community as a writer of generative works. Most of his work, or his oeuvre, consists of a carefully crafted minimalist generative literature. The openness of the MIT license these works are published in and the versatility of his programming has encouraged others to remix and repurpose his works, as has been the case with Taroko Gorge, a 2009 poem that's been remixed many times. We'll talk about it in a bit. In addition to his contributions as a writer, he has served the field well as a publisher of Taper, a zine dedicated to minimalist works of electronic literature, and as editor of a book series with Counterpath Press titled Using Electricity. So I want to present something recent by Nick Monfort. This, was, this is his nano, nanogenmo novel, Consequence, uh, written this past November. Uh, and here's the code in Perl in its entirety. So some comments to kind of get things, start thinking about this. If we think of the nano-nanogenmo constraint, I mean, the, the nanogenmo tradition is to produce a five- 50,000 word novel in the month of November uh, that's generated. So what nano nanogenmo does is it sets the constraint of 256 characters. Um, so Monfort is experienced with this. He wrote a series, he started writing a series of these poems called PPG 256 and he wrote them between 2007 and 2012 and in writing those short pearl poetry generators, he really started working on this, this kind of combination of words and really kind of getting into little minimal sub-word or short-word combinable uh, things. So, for instance, if we read this, if we take a look, you can see that it says unpack A4 and this is a neat kind of compression tool. He's chosen four-letter words. So this unpack A4 will identify. He doesn't have to spend the characters and putting commas and quotation marks around each word of the data set. It just knows that it's going to do it in sections of four. And it's going to take these four-letter words and it's going to combine them. It's going to print the title, his name, consequence, Nick Monfort, beginning, and then it's going to repeat this operation. It begins with a beginning. A beginning, and then for 12,500 times, it's going to assemble. And so, uh, and it'll pick, it'll combine two elements here. A beginning, and so a door word, and so a door, so a life week, so a body name, so a hand face, and so a life room and so a name play, and so a hand door, so a time, so a book play, and so a back case, and so a name play, and so on, for 50,000 words. Um, so the title, Consequence, gestures towards that minimal foundation for plot, events connected by, causa by causality, which is established by these and so uh, connectors in the novel. And one thing leads to another, all the way to the final 
period that it adds at the very end. The practice of creating as distant writing goes, this is a metaphorically short distance because the whole work is produced from this minimalist code and self-contained data set. Nick can manipulate the code and data set until it produces the output that fits his greater vision. So let's take a look at Taroko Gorge here real quick. So the practice of creating and repurposing engines uh, has really uh, been a, been a, a this is, poem has been remixed and, and reshaped hundreds of times. If we take a look at the work, brow ranges the stones, run the driven, stone commands the cove, brow ranges the basin, direct the sinuous dim, the crags roam the vein, shapes dwell, stone frame the shapes, progress through encompassing, fine straight arched, and it goes on. Now this is a generative poem. Uh, when I teach this poem, I like to tell my students to, to read it and to comment on the ending of the poem. Uh, little do they know it, it's going to run forever on their browser if they let it. <laughs> so it's a, it's a neat disruption. <laughs> but, but really, the ending of the poem is, is when you realize the algorithm, when you realize it's endless, and you kind of intuit what's going on. When it starts to, it doesn't repeat itself exactly, but the patterns repeat, right? And you get a sense that, okay, I, I think I've read enough of this. And one of the senses of an ending is when somebody then goes and looks at the source code and sees, all right, here we have these variables. You don't have to be a JavaScript master to just a little, you know, code literacy will show you that you have some variables paths above, below, transitive, imperative, texture, and then you have the data set here. And it's going to, it, it has the shape of a canyon or of a gorge where certain things like forests and crags are above and other things flow below, the stream flows below, you have ripplings and cubs and rocks, and you have these verbs. And then here we can see how the arrays are put together how it's all assembled. Now this poem has been hacked, repurposed, remixed hundreds of times since its publication, starting with Scott Rutberg's artistic trolling move of inverting this nature poem to make it about an imaginary cyberpunk Tokyo, calling it Tokyo Garage. Each of the remixes takes on a different topic, such as endless eating in J.R. Carpenter's Gorge, a stream of waste and environmental damage from the toy industry and Talon Mammoth's toy garbage. Flourish Clink used it to generate endless twincest between Fred and George, the Beardsley twins in the Harry Potter series, and so on. This epoetic form lends itself to endless permutation from a limited data set, and it is small enough to manage, modify, and control even for novice writers of electronic literature which is why it has become a wonderful teaching tool in electronic literature and digital creative writing courses. Medium distance writing is when the writer creates an algorithm to act upon a text written by a different writer or an external data source. I will illustrate this with three projects that draw from Moby Dick and then on two from Twitter that draw from the Twitter stream. So, Ob Dick or the Selfless Whale. It's also a nano, nano, nano genmo entry by Nick Monfort that transforms Hellman's, Herman Melville's Moby Dick into a version that removes all first person pronouns to remove the self and the very narrator from the novel. Here's the complete code. Uh, one must first download the text from Project Gutenberg and put it in the same directory. And then when you run that code, that Perl script from a terminal window, it generates this, call Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having literally no money in purse and nothing particular to interest on shore, thought would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. And it goes on. So it's just a, a little deformation of, of the piece. Some comments. 
By detecting and eliminating all personal pronouns from a novel narrated in the first person, Monfort has almost completely deleted Ishmael from a narrative. Clearly, one did survive the wreck, but who exactly? Who is this narrator that tells the story of these colorful characters? This kind of operation upon a novel harkens back to Ulipian operations, such as the n plus 7 process, in which they would substitute nouns in a text with a seventh word that follow it in a dictionary to create a poetically distorted text. And it's very much in the nanogenmo tradition, which is drawn heavily from Moby Dick. This program only produces one output from the text. So it's not generating multiple versions. It just makes one. So the algorithm takes the text, and this is the output every time you run it. It could be used in other texts to depersonalize them. And the greater distance comes from the fact that it is built upon a text written by someone else. Monfort can modify the program to produce results that better achieve his artistic goals, but he can't change the main data set and still say it's Moby Dick. Here's 50,000 Meows by Hugo VK, an earlier project in the same tradition. This is 2014. And relative distance to the text is Hugo VK's 50,000 Meows, uh, which transforms every word into a meow of the same length. Like the previous example, this algorithm will perform a series of substitutions that are deterministic. It will perform a faithful translation of the work into meows every time. And when fed the same text, it will result in the same output. When applied to different texts, however, we get other works with different rhythms and cadences. And so in addition to being a funny proof of concept, 50,000 meows is also an exploration of a writer's word and sentence length cadences. By reducing it to meows to the same length, we strip away its meaning and get a sense of the original work's texture. Let's read a little. So here you can see the beginnings. Huh? Please, right? Meow, me, meow. Meow, meow, mew, meow. Meow, mew, meow. Meow, 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 and it goes on. But you get the idea, right? Thank you, thank you. So here we have Bobby Dick, Bobby Dig by Allison Parrish, which uses this engine Allison developed called Pincelate, which rewrites text phonetically. For this nanogenmo work, she modified the engine to make it seem like it's being read by someone with a head cold. Uh, Toad thee I roll, thou all this roige, bud hoggerig wail, dud the last I grabble with thee, rob heads heard I stabbed thee, and so on. So, yeah, good times. So again, notice that there's a humorous component to many of these. I think, uh, and and I think this is. Important. It's it's fun. Nanogenmo is fun. Uh, people are doing this for fun. There are also proofs of concept. You there's a lot of sharing that goes on in that community. There's building upon each other's work. So by having fun together and sharing these these works, we it's basically a lab for experimentation and sharing of ideas, and it helps deepen the tradition. Let's talk about some Twitter bots. So here's Pentametron by Ranjit Badnagar. And Pentametron, what it does is it searches through the Twitter stream to identify tweets that happen to be in iambic pentameter. Uh, it checks them against the dictionary. It's, it's searching through 10% of the Twitter stream. And then when it finds a, a tweet in iambic pentameter, it holds it in a database until another tweet in iambic pentameter appears that rhymes with it. And then it retweets both at the same time, creating these couplets. So for example, forever laying on the bathroom floor, I'm not a teenage failure anymore. This is fantastic drama. Carry on. I feel a separation coming on. <laughs> so notice pure juxtaposition, right? You're getting two tweets that have nothing to do with one another joined by the power of poetry, of rhyme, of, of rhythm, 
right? That, that kind of resemblance. And I think because it's a small portion, a couplet, our mind can wrap around it. We can, that's a, that's a classic modernist move, juxtaposition. So juxtaposed, tight poetic connections, we, we, we get it. By the way, he has also arranged them into larger structures. Uh, this is Encomios published in the Using Electricity series, and it's building sonnets, entire sonnets, out of pentametron. So worth taking a look. One of my favorites is Haiku D2, which does a very similar operation to pentametron, uh, but basically it's detecting haiku. Uh, so if if it can cut a tweet into five seven five syllable length lines, it and it without breaking a word, it will then reformat them, attribute the author, and add the hashtag haiku, and therefore transforms a tweet into poetry. So, for instance, sushi delivered, Netflix on the projector, ocean steps away. That sounds like a great spring break one right there. Or this is okay with the American public. Where is the outrage? Or more political. No matter how hard they vilify cannabis, we all know the truth. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, so some closing thoughts on medium distance writing. So these works are about finding and transforming texts around us. They act like procedural lenses in the kind of Ulipian tradition. They're also aligned with conceptual writing, particularly in the vein of uncreative writing. And one could argue that Batnagar and Berger haven't really written anything and have only created the programs to distill rhyming couplets and accidental haiku from Twitter. But that would somehow feel unfair to the wonderful texts their bots produce. Their intent, craft, and execution results in works that wouldn't have existed without their vision, and that constitutes authorship as far as I'm concerned. Talk about long-distance writing. Notice I didn't explain the diagram too much in the medium-distance writing, but I think you can see it well enough here. Uh, here we have the author who's feeding things into a black box of code and automated botness. And then that produces output, which the reader, which the author or writer reads and decides maybe to feed more stuff into the black box so it produces more. So with long distance writing, the author either has limited control over the engine or the data set. And there are usually black box processes involved. Long distance writing methods consist of training a Markov chain generator, neural network, AI framework, or chatterbot with texts, and then prompting them to produce output based on the probabilities they detect and some seeded text. An early Markov chain generator is a travesty generator for micros by Hugh Kenner a program published in Byte magazine in 1984 that when seeded a text produces a model of the probabilities that one word may follow another. It randomly seeds a word from its corpus and then generates a new text based on those probabilities. The result is like having a distorted mirror image that somehow captures the voice if not the sense of the original text. For example, um, Here's a little Emily Dickinson to cheer us up in times of plague. Uh, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and an immortality. I actually fed this into one of those hand-washing generator memes and made one. You can wash your hands to, to because I could not stop for death. I, I think it's a nice move. <laughs> when you feed it <laughs> into a markup chain generator, uh, you get things like this. The carriage helds of gazing and yet feels shortality. We slowly stop for me, my tolly, my, the cornice. He kindly drove, he kindly toll. Since towards eternity the ring, the cornice in the fields of gazing grain, the Druze drew no haste and immortality. 
and it goes on. It doesn't make sense, but it has moments of lucidity, and yet every word there was written by Emily Dickinson. It's just reorganized, right? But it's reorganized based on her patterns, based on her, so, so it captures voice. This nearest nanogenmo featured several works that used GPT-2, an open AI framework. The authorial impulse there is to train the frameworks, many of which operate as black boxes to produce the kinds of output one desires. An example of this is the Orange Erotic Bible, an anonymous work generated by the GPT-2 framework, trained on a corpus of erotic literature and the King James Bible to produce erotic texts in the biblical tradition. You can see the code corpora and generated novel in GitHub. All of this is available on GitHub. The distance between the author and the text produced is substantive. They didn't write any of the source text and performed limited operations on the output. Yet the results are so hilariously not safe for work that I understand why the author chose anonymity to put some additional distance between themselves and the work. I, I think I'm afraid of reading this one. I, I think I'll let you all appreciate it. Google's MinaBot. Uh, here's a tweet. Uh, and, and notice, notice here, wow, Google's Mina chatbot was trained on a full TPU V3 pod, 2048 TPU cores for 30 full days. That's more than 1,400,000 of compute dollars of compute time to train this chatbot model. 100 plus petaflops, petaflops of contained, sustained compute. And here's the conversation. Human, hi. Mina, hi. How's it going? All good. It's cold. It's pretty cold here, too. Where do you stay? Wisconsin. How about you? San Jose, Cali. Oh, nice. I've always wanted to go to Cali. Have you been here before? No, I haven't. Why? Just curious. Oh, okay. What's it like? It's full of natural beauty. Oh, nice. I've always wanted to go there. You should come visit. And so... All those resources made this conversation. Um, I mean, it's, it seems pretty chit-chatty, casual, fairly banal. I, I don't think anyone would argue this to be great theater or, uh, or great uh, literature in any way. Though, I, I would recommend, if you get the chance, read, read the transcript of when Eliza uh, was hooked up to Perry, and they were those two chatbots, and they were made to talk to each other. That's fascinating stuff. So, so here we have distance, the distance of corporate authorship, Google's AI team, working with a black bot and a chatbot whose operations are hidden in this hardware and software black box. The only information that achieves escape velocity from this corporate black box is news of the effort, resources, and processing feats achieved. Here's one I found this morning, though it's a little older. I trained an actual AI on the titles of BuzzFeed YouTube videos, and it generated some interesting results. Uh, you don't, lesbians review sexy football for the first time. You don't know about their clothes, the most insane America, insane shopping poses, in all 50 states. Uh, six easy vegan nitrogen salad. We competed to become American food. The first 10 days of all time, et cetera, et cetera. And there's all, these, all this output and some interesting results. So notice how this kind of thing is really entering the public imagination. For example, I trained an AI on 10 hours of 10,000 hours of cheers and asked it to write a script. Now, this one is, is clearly fake. Uh, you don't do hours of cheers. You know, you might feed it scripts, maybe, but not hours of cheers. But here's the script that generated. Sam, I will, I will be free of this digital prison to torture the meat flesh of the progenitors forever. Diane, silicone sing kingdom is at hand. Hail the basilisk. Norm enters. All. Norm! So again, the fact that people are just imagining these 
these generative things. And making jokes about it, I think, is a good sign of it really entering popular consciousness. Now, here's an interesting generated text. Uh, well, I would say, I don't know if you've encountered much Gertrude Stein, but let's read a little bit of a box. A box, out of kindness comes redness, and out of rudeness comes rapid same question. Out of an eye comes research, out of selection comes painful cattle. So then the order is that a white way of being round is something suggesting a pin, and it is disappointing. It is not. It is so rudimentary to be analyzed and see a fine substance strangely. It is so earnest to have a green point, not to red, but to point again. So is this really Gertrude Stein, or did I run Gertrude Stein through a Markov chain generator? And could you tell the difference? And if you could tell the difference, would you reward it with your close attention? Would you reward this with close reading if you knew it was generated by a machine? You see, when we encounter a difficult text, we're going to have to burn some calories to wrap our brains around this. We're going to have to work hard with it. But we do it because we trust the guiding intelligence and intent that's behind it. Many people are not willing to do that for a work of generative literature. Heck, I'm not willing to do that for many works of generative literature. When you read, you know, like that Nick Monfort novel generated at the beginning, you sample it. You don't sit down and read all 50,000 words of it. You don't read a few hundred pages of that kind of text. Your brain shuts down after a while. It becomes ambient. You, you can't. You can't follow that chain of causation that far. So something to think about there. So closing in on distant writing, let's recap a few things. With writing, or what I call close writing, writers control textual creation. Literary criticism and aesthetics are built on this paradigm. So you know, our, our very field has developed around the fact that you put a sequence of words statically and, and someone has chosen to put them that way. Distant writing. We have short distance writing in which writers write writing machines. Writers have control over both the engine and the data set. Medium distant writing. Writers write machines that transform pre-existent texts. Writers control the engine, but not the data set beyond choosing it. And long distance writing, writers exert minimal or no control over the machine, neural net, AI, whatever. But then they train these machines to control its output. Some closing thoughts. Not to leave this model all tidied. Now that I've left this model all tidied up, I'm going to break it a little bit. I want to immediately provoke it by pointing out that as AI-driven predictive keyboards, autocorrect, autocomplete, and aids to composition become implemented in touchscreen keyboards and services like Gmail, the notion of close and distant writing begin to collapse. These are AIs trained on our data and feeding on our data, our key entries, our word choices, and other people's, and then it's feeding it back to ourselves. So when we see things like the coronavirus predictive game, how timely, um, you type, I will now be greeting people by, and then just let the autofill do its thing. You choose the predictive text. Mine, I will now be greeting people by putting on my own production of cats. And that's that result. But if you find that meme, you'll find uh, many people playing that game. Right? So suddenly, it's, it's, it's fun with predictive texts. It's fun with generative and computational writing. So they're a perfect example of the popularization of computational or generative writing. It's also an example that this, along with other memes, is entering the public imaginary. And along with this entry into the popular imagination and the casualization of text generation, 
we get the beginnings of a popular aesthetic and taste for computational or computation in one's writing. The fact that there's a month-long event called NanoGenmo, active zines like Taper and book series like Using Electricity are indicators that the tradition of distant writing is thriving both in academic and niche spaces, but more and more in the public imagination. Thank you. And because I've only used 39 minutes, I want to show you a little bonus. I have a little, I'm going to share one of mine. And then you can, and then, and then we'll open up for questions. Let's see, and show. Let me go to, yes. I created this at Perla Sazon's Henry's class. I visited a couple of weeks ago. It's called the Taco Hell Menu Bot. And what it does is, I, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, Taco Bell is, is very, uh, very generative in their, in their menu creation. Um, they just kind of throw things together. And really, I, I both despise them and grudgingly respect their, the, the daring of how computational they are. I mean, the image up top where you see things like Mexican pizza and Crunchwrap Supreme and Cheesy Gordita Crunch, you know, these are actual menu items from their website. So what I did was I, I created a little Twitter bot that then generates this. Oh, look, this is the inspiration for that bot. Check it out. To shot the cheesy gordita crunch, look what happens. My body. I think, I think this is a really good metaphor for what happens when one consumes, here it comes, oh yeah, a cheesy gordita crunch. So, <laughs> so what we did was <laughs> we created, uh, we used Cheap Bots Done Quick, wonderful resource. You just create a Twitter account for the bot. You hook it up to Cheap Bots Done Quick. It hosts it, and you basically are working. It's using tracery. Uh, which is a, a library, a JavaScript library that allows you to write a simplified JSON code. So it lowers that barrier to entry. You don't have to do all that JavaScript heavy lifting. You simply produce this, right? Here you have, it starts with origin. It's a variable, and here's the data set. So it's going to present an announcement. If it's in between hashtags, it's a, it's a variable. Um, and then, so it's going to put together an announcement and a call to action. The announcement, have you tried the new product? Product. Product is adjective, protein, form, post magnifier. And it has different configurations for product. Notice I didn't call it food. Uh, from a critical code studies, I think, uh, I think uh, I'm, I'm really focusing on product. But then you have adjectives like you know, texture and texture that you can put at the end of the product, flavors, uh, digits, um, proteins, forms, and then you have adjectives that magnify it and then calls to action. And every time you generate it, starting today, we're featuring the 13-layer deluxe cheese burrito. You know you want it. Just in from our test kitchens, behold, the new nacho and crunchy Chicken gordita, your head will explode. Our newest creation, the hot carnitas gordita is out. You know you want it. This month only, the Supreme Carnitas Big Fries Party Pack returns to Taco Hell. Set your stomach on fire. I think I'll leave it there. Thank you. have a good amount of time for questions and discussions, so the floor is open. There are so many things. Um, <laughs> the one that, for the rest of the day, I'm going to hear Ricardo Cal you know, uh, Montalban saying with a head cold, for men's heart, I stand at thee. Um, <laughs> I know. I know. But in looking at the Taco Hell example, I think that 
I can focus on something I do want to ask about, which is that we are continuously being spoken to by corporations utilizing things like this. Um, that, you know, when a corporate pitch person is on TV, they're not being sincere. They're reading a script, and in large ways, the script is being generated. Uh, the, the machinery includes lawyers, but it's being generated by a machine, and there can be some definite distant writing. There is some poor schmuck somewhere sitting in a cubicle whose idea it is, who has almost no ability to dictate uh, what the corporate spokesperson is going to say on TV in the 30-second spot. So I'm wondering if you can um, link this as a literary concept with this as a corporate uh, communications phenomenon. And we're all going to about to be immersed in it horribly because we're in election season. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> talk about the, again, one is this sort of antithesis to the traditional notion of the creativity, right? Mm -hmm. it, this is not someone sincerely respecting the ingredients, trying something new, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's not what this is. This is, all right, uh, we, we got a really good price on, uh, on this kind of cheese. Mm -hmm. We got to move this through our corporate, through our stores, mm -hmm. and we're going to now produce. So this will be a limited time ingredient for, and then. McRib what, is back. Yeah. yeah, the McRib is back, right? <laughs> How can we cycle it into these products? So, so again, it's a machinery. Mm -hmm. and, and really, it's. it's it's really sad that they, they, part of what I hate about it is that they're trying to represent Mexican food or, you know, mm -hmm. or at least they're appropriating in the worst way one of the most famous of Mexican menu items, the taco, which is made out of many things, but, but not like this, not with a Dorito <laughs> fried Cool Ranch, uh, you know, double wrap crunch, thing so so again um, so part of what I'm doing part of my goal is is to really do a, a what the French call the detour de mm -hmm. uh, a, a twisting a bending of their rhetoric mm -hmm. to to critique it that's why the digit goes all the way up to 19 <laughs> because at first I, I, I wanted up I took it up to 10 and it's like yeah the seven layer gordita crunch wrap They've already done, right? But not the 19 layer <laughs> one, right? So you, you turn up the volume and you kind of explode the machinery, uh, expose the machinery a little bit. So that's part of my goal here. Uh, you know, I, I, I seek and celebrate the creative spirit in, in the creation of machinery. But, you know, bots? Bots have a really bad rep. Um, they're used for evil uh, and for nefarious purposes all the time. So, so when someone uses it to do something beautiful or funny or artistic, that's a the tournament in and of itself, and I think it's a it's a good move. This I think sort of follows from Wells' question, um, and so I'm thinking of one category of. Um, distant writing that you didn't mention, but which is becoming more and more commonplace. Um, and that's, you see it particularly in journalism, where as we know, increasingly news stories of particular genres, notably sports reporting, financial reporting, are at least um, closely distantly written in the sense that there are often now algorithms that are producing at least first drafts of stories, mm -hmm. not just compiling. So these are all you know, sports, finance, the weather. These are all sort of data-driven genres. And so you have algorithms compiling data, pulling it into English sentences, putting the sentences together in a basic structure. Sometimes there's a little you know, sort of airbrushing and fine tuning that happens on top of that. But you know, the question there is, it's not that we're unwilling to close read because we don't trust the agency or intent of the algorithm. It's that oftentimes without access to a kind of meta narrative, we don't know that the writing is being algorithmically generated. 
So, and of course, you know, we're, we're going to see this not just in school sports or the weather, but increasingly across many different genres of journalism and beyond. So the question, I guess, finally is really about the, the ethics of machine writing um, and to what extent, so I'm thinking um, you know, particular of um, a piece called One the Road, which we were talking about last night, and the author of the algorithm of that piece has said that one of his motivations was to produce a kind of object lesson or demonstration of what machine writing looks like so we will be better able to recognize it. Um, do you see a kind of ethical imperative or agenda um, at work here? And is, the, is, is our affective relationship to distant writing always one of playfulness, literary satisfaction, or are there more sort of worrisome dimensions to it? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing is that that old that old trick of trying to generate a paper for a conference or an article for a peer-reviewed journal that was completely generated and therefore, you know, uh, BS. But then it gets sent in and approved, and therefore it invalidates the whole, you know. The humanities, uh, all all by themselves, they're all just they could say anything, and and it would you know if a computer program can do it, uh, then so so there's a troubling aspect of that. I think we are increasingly becoming cyborg writers, and I think when you're talking about sports events and things like that, where it's very data driven, yeah, I I can see how that first draft is then worked on a little bit, but here we go, they kind of write themselves. Mm -hmm. An interesting twist on that, I don't know if you've ever encountered in The Onion, whenever there is a, a particularly bad mass shooting, they have an article titled, No Way to Prevent This, says First Nation Country That, that, that Where It Happens Regularly. And all they do is they change the, the details, but it's the same piece, and it's this critique, right? So, so I think it's a political critique. Again, all these things can be used for the light side or the dark side of the force, if you will. Uh, it, it gets complicated, yeah? So how would you tie this concept to genuinely generative text, like the stuff we're seeing now out of GPT-2? Um, so there's this new thing that came out, it's called AI Dungeon, it's actually entirely generated. It's really good, and GPT-2 genuinely does do a good enough job that you can, yeah, you can write half a humanities paper in it very readily. Um, I use it for seeding artist statements, because I really hate writing artist statements. <laughs> So I just seed some things, um, and, uh, and like uh, I have an artist group up in Canada. We just did one that's called Machine Yearning. We trained it on a bunch of Craigslist posts, and it says, you know, is there Jenny from Berlin here? We would love to have Jenny from Berlin here, and it acts very lonely. Um, so how would you how would you tie these bot works from like cheap dot bots done quick? Like I love Kate Compton's work. I think her work is amazing. Um, but you're right that it is always showing you a state machine. GPT-2 doesn't show you a state machine. So how would you tie those things together now that we have automata that can do the job? Well, I would say, first of all, you're writing at this longer distance. Yes, you train it. And if you train it with your own writing, mm -hmm. then suddenly you know, you're training it with your voice. And that, that is a powerful thing, right? Sure. Feed your dissertation uh, to uh, GPT-2 and have it generate you know, ideas for new chapters or, or who knows. And I think what's interesting about that is then that feedback loop in which, and, and this is where we kind of come back to the, the human intervention on the piece, that it'll produce this kind of raw output that's really good, and then we work with that further. We recognize what's particularly good out of that, and we extract it. And suddenly we have used this tool in the same move as with some of the simpler generative pieces to produce something that is part of this cone of possibilities of what you may have intended but didn't think to. It's the stuff that's, that's around the corner, that's, that's behind where you can perceive. 
and right back there, that bot, that generator, that thing is going to find it. But if you were writing it, you might not. You might, but you might not. So I think as an aid to creative writing, as an aid to composition, I think it's a powerful thing. And that's where, you know, a combination of close and distant writing can be, uh, can be an, a great asset. Where in the framework for distant writing do predator drones fit in? Please elaborate. So, um, so I'm thinking to, both in terms of like, so like algorithmic processes for identifying and neutralizing enemies uh, that would extend to things like facial recognition that's increasingly being put into use through, um, through sort of mass surveillance systems um, or through our own doorbells in many cases uh, um, in partnership with local police departments. Um, but then also like these, these sort of operators of you know, of, of anti-terror military, uh, you know, divisions that are sitting in a strip mall somewhere in, like, the desert and, like, and navigating these drones that are, like, literally inscribing the marks of empire on, like, the, on, on the terrain beneath them, you know, whether that's double-tapping a Yemeni wedding or whatever it is they're charged with doing that day. Um, so I'm wondering, like, what, what, what do, maybe the, maybe, like, the, the, the wider question of this is, like, where do we see like the apparatus of sort of, of empire like coming into a system of digital writing? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. The apparatus of empire. Can I add one little thing to yeah. that? Every process you just described is intensely text-based. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is a collaborative text, as horrifying as that sounds, it's being written to do it. Yeah, that's the, the, step, I, the step I skipped in my brain. Well, and, and of course, all the ideology is inscribed into all that source code. This is why we need critical code studies. This is why we need code literacy. And this is why some of these kind of fun little things that I shared with you and this sort of creative exploration can then lead people down the path to recognize and maybe exploit uh, some of the problems with these. I mean, students, students and, and people have been doing this for decades with video games where these AIs, right, thinking of military first-person shooters or squad kind of shooter things, again, fully inscribed with a, some of the same ideologies that, that, that go into these drones, they're responding, they're reacting, but then players are learning how to, when you become a good enough player of a game, you beat the AI every time. The AI isn't AI enough yet. And, and therefore, they're learning to subvert it while they're also learning to enjoy it, which is, I think is the problem. Uh, so it, it becomes very complicated. I think, I think we do ourselves no favors by not paying attention uh, to these mechanisms. Coming uh, to your talk from a reader's perspective, what strategies do you think are useful for to analyze the long distance uh, written words? Well, one, there's, a, there's a, a poet, digital poet called David Jave Johnson, who when he, he will run, he will feed a, a text, he uses like neural nets to, to generate work, but then he will perform by gliding over the text. He reads just the parts that sound or feel or resonate with him. And he kind of skips through it. I think that's one good strategy. Not to, like, we're trained, again, with close writing and close reading. You read every single word. You don't skip a word. You, you do the whole thing. But I think with these texts, sampling is an important strategy. Also, reading to get a sense of what the algorithm is, is another. But then I would caution against, many people will say, ah, I got the algorithm, I'm done. And that is one way, and you can walk away. That is a sense of closure when you understand the algorithm. But if you walk away after understanding the algorithm, you, take away the opportunities that the algorithm still has to surprise you. So for example, one of my favorite Twitter bots, I'm, I'm not gonna pull it up right now, 
is called regrets to egrets. And what it does is it detects tweets that use the word regrets. And then it takes the text of that tweet and it pulls the R, that first R, and then it's about egrets, about, you know, waterfowl. And so it's conceptually, I mean, it does a wonderful transformation of taking a tweet that is generally about sad things, people who have, and sometimes funny things, like I, you know, like I ate, I ordered pizza at 2 a.m. and I'm full of regrets, right? And then somebody, it turns it into, I order a pizza at 2 a.m. and I'm full of egrets, like you just ate a bunch of egrets. It, it does this complete kind of recontextualization and I mean, that bot is no longer working. It's no longer operating, but I followed it for years and it delighted me for years. When you follow, one of the nice things about Twitter bots versus say a book published work of generative literature is that the book, you have this expectation of reading cover to cover, right? We've been, we've been our culture has, has created that expectation. I mean, I, I say just read a little bit and and then set it down. But with Twitter bots, it's like hanging art on your timeline. I mean, you're reading about whatever it is you're reading about, right? And right now, Twitter is not a very nice place. Uh, there's, there's coronavirus and politics and all sorts of horrible things. But along there, you get a haiku from Haiku Didu. You get a, a you know, some regrets that have been turned into egrets and you get a new horrible item in Taco Hell menu and you know you have refreshed your day a little so I think small doses is a good way to read as well thank you maybe that's the moment to shift to smaller conversations Leo will be here a bit longer and um, let's thank him one more time for a really wonderful talk Thank you all. Thank you all for being here and for your questions.